For decades, America has tried to combat the harms of drug use primarily through banning drugs and incarcerating people who use them. But this has caused a violent underground market for drugs, increasing crime in our communities. It's caused contaminated substances, increasing overdose deaths, and it's caused incarceration to skyrocket, destabilizing families. What we're doing isn't working. Crime, death, and broken families are the collateral damage of using the criminal justice system to address the public health issue of drugs. If you're looking for a better path forward, you're in the right place. What if we changed our drug policies to prioritize life, health, harm reduction, and thriving? And what if it benefited all of us? Our criminal justice approach to drugs had a beginning and it can have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. I'm Christina Dent, your host. And if you're new here, End It For Good is a nonprofit started in 2019 based in Mississippi that invites people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. This podcast is one of the ways we do that. You can head over to episode 34 to hear my story as a conservative Christian foster mom changing my own mind on the best path forward with drugs, and then come on back and dive in deeper. I didn't change my mind overnight and most other people don't either. We all need time to learn, think, ask questions, and explore. Whatever your perspective is, I'm glad you're here. Let's journey together. Welcome back to the End of For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host. I'm here today with my friend, Chris Fries. Um, Chris is a retired special agent in charge with the FBI. He was with the FBI for 23 years. Um, he now does speaking, training, consulting on how to help you become the trusted leader everybody wants to work with. A big part of that is the science of hope, which he's really passionate about. Um, so Chris, welcome. Oh, thank you, Christina. Glad to be here. So give us kind of the, the, the one minute overview of your career. Um, you've had an interesting career and I'm really excited to dive into how your career and what you have learned over the last couple of years intersect with the issues that we work on related to drugs and how we handle them. Sure. Well, my career started after graduation from college. I went to work for the state of Tennessee. Uh, became, took me a while, but finally became an accountant and was doing audit work and realizing this is not really what I want to do. I had an opportunity to uh, do some investigations, but not law enforcement investigations. And that sort of whetted my appetite. Uh, and then through a fortuitous uh, opportunity when uh, some FBI agents came and talked to me about uh, a case I had, introduced me to the possibility of working with the FBI. And uh, I did that. We can talk about that more later if you want. But I then I worked with the FBI for 23 years and did a lot of white collar, public corruption, uh, did some cases that were drug related cases, but uh, really heavy on the on the white collar side, did some counterintelligence, counterterrorism cases. Uh, about halfway through my career, I ended up uh, getting into management and worked my way up the ladder, so to speak, until uh, I retired just a couple of years ago uh, as a special agent in charge of the FBI for the state of Mississippi. And so what that entailed was I was, in essence, responsible for everything that we were doing in Mississippi during my tenure. Once I retired, I had an opportunity to governor Mississippi at the time, Phil Bryan appointed me executive director for the Mississippi Department of Human Services for the last part of his tenure, uh, which was a great um, opportunity for me to sort of learn or I guess see 
issues I had been dealing with from a different side, a different perspective. Uh, and did that. And in the last couple of years, I've been promoting, as you talked about, the science of hope and promoting how to become a more trusted leader in your organization uh, and uh, sharing that news with, with people in Mississippi primarily. So what got you interested? You're an accountant. Uh, tell me about the first time you thought about entering law enforcement as a career. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I wish I had a great story that said, you know, from my childhood early on, that's all I ever wanted to do. <laughs> I know people that way. I mean, that was their childhood dream. They'd seen the FBI TV shows and, and they, they wanted to do it. And uh, I grew up in a small town in middle Tennessee. And I thought when I moved to Nashville, I was I had my job. And I was just going to do that the rest of my career and I'd be a happy camper. But uh, in doing my investigations, a, a lawyer who had contracted with the Department of Transportation in Tennessee uh, to buy and close out the properties that the state needed to, for right-of-ways with the public's private citizens, she was counting that money. And so she was taking part of it for herself. And I don't know, I think the dollar amount might've been sixty, seventy thousand dollars $70,000. And because of a fair amount of transportation dollars are funded by the federal government, the local FBI office, for whatever reason, I kind of joke and said it must've been a slow day at the office for them, but, but they got in touch with me and came out and uh, we talked about the case and whether or not they were going to pursue it federally. And at some point, one of them said, well, you, you seem like you know what you're doing and we're always looking for a good accountant. And, have you ever thought about the FBI? And honestly, until that point, I had not. Uh, it was not something that was on my radar. And I said, well, no, but uh, tell me more. And so he did what uh, all good agents do, and that is tell me all the good things about working for the FBI. And I think we went uh, out in his car and, you know, he turned the lights and the siren on. And I guess I was like a little kid again. It's like, oh, this is cool. i got to be a part of this. And and it took a couple of years. They had a hiring freeze, but by the summer of 96, uh, I had been accepted and gone through the process and was reporting to the FBI Academy at Quantico, Virginia, uh, for what would be 23 years of my life. Mm. And that's when I met you is when you were the special agent in charge of um, the FBI in Mississippi. And I remember realizing uh, who you were. You came to one of our events and thinking, what on earth, you know, <laughs> I'm really nervous now, um, but it's been so great to get to know you. And even just the conversations that we've had, the points where we agree, the points where we disagree, um, you've sharpened my thinking a lot, um, cause you're a very thoughtful person. So I've appreciated that and appreciated, um, our conversations over time. I want to bring, bring those to other people here to get those kind of thoughts that you have shared with me over time. So, um, kind of bringing that big picture into what we work on, particularly with um, drug policy. Um, you're, you're on a journey with that somewhere on that journey of rethinking what we have done with drugs. Do you, can you kind of pinpoint um, when and what caused that sort of beginning to rethink how we're approaching drugs through either the criminal justice system or what, what was the beginning? What was the catalyst for you after, you know, this, long career in the FBI, um, rethinking what we're doing with drugs? Well, I think in some way that catalyst was attending, attending your event. Um, you know, I had seen in the FBI, obviously, decades uh, of generational trauma, right? The people we come in contact with, the people that we uh, investigated, arrested, prosecuted, 
people that spent time in, in prison. Uh, at some point, there was almost always some intersection with drugs. It could have been a recreational use or it could have been, you know, they were trafficking uh, in drugs. But it was just the current paradigm. It was just the way of life. I mean, it was just I was in law enforcement. Law enforcement uh, job was to enforce the law. The laws were that you could not uh, engage in buying and selling and using illegal substances. And therefore, we enforce the law. Uh, and, you know, the, having the thought or the question of, well, is there a different way? Should we even have laws that um, criminalize drugs? I, you know, it really didn't cross my mind uh, until, again, at some point I started uh, to the point where I was seeing people, knowing them personally who had been addicted to drugs, uh, who had issues uh, themselves and seeing how the effect on their lives. Uh, coming in more contact with people who were trying to treat uh, individuals who had substance abuse uh, addiction. And then, like I said, uh, attending uh, your events a couple of times and, and hearing a different perspective on, you know, can we look at this a different way? Should we be doing this at all? And, you know, it started, started me thinking about it. So what have you learned about trauma when I first heard you um, speak? So you came to one of our events <clears throat> not long after that you were speaking somewhere and I went to hear you speak because I was interested in um, kind of what your thoughts were. This was not about drug policy. It was just about, um, you know, adverse childhood experiences and the role of trauma. So that was really interesting coming from somebody in law enforcement. Um, and that wasn't something I'd encountered before that there was a lot of thought or knowledge maybe about the effects of trauma. Um, so talk a little bit about your journey in our conversations. It's been clear that your understanding of trauma has a big impact on how you think about uh, drug policy. What, what did you learn about trauma that kind of began this process of change for you? Well, you mentioned adverse childhood experiences, and there was a study that was put out in the late nineties by a couple of doctors, one in California with the Kaiser Permanente uh, and an insurance company, the other uh, at the CDC in Atlanta. And they had been looking at how trauma affected people from uh, their morbidity, their health issues, uh, and things that uh, affected their lifespan and the outcomes that they would have and the, and the different challenges that they had that were over and above what you would expect to the average individual. And so when I came to Jackson, Mississippi, and I'm trying to learn the lay of the land, uh, one of the things I was doing was reading the local newspapers, and uh, there's a local newspaper, Jackson Free Press. And the editor, publisher, Donna Ladd, had written some stories on the, uh, the uh, violence in the city, primarily from uh, the juvenile perspective, that they themselves were victims and that they were engaging in the violence. And part of that was her talking about adverse childhood experiences. Uh, and so I started hearing about this and thinking, could it be that the, the trauma that people faced, the how they were raised in childhood, the experiences they had in childhood, could that literally affect them throughout their adulthood, throughout their lives? And would it have an impact on um, their engagement or interaction, intersection with the criminal justice system? So if, if you know that it affects their physical health, could there also be a connection socially with uh, 
the criminal justice system. And I came to understanding and belief that yes, that they were, that there were. What people experienced and how they experienced it as children uh, and the effect on their brains and how it molded their brains gave insight into why they were making decisions they were making, uh, usually poor decisions, bad decisions, as we would say, or judge that. Uh, and that in some ways, it, I don't want to give the impression that they have no accountability or, or they're not responsible for their actions, but because I believe they are. But in essence, they, they almost couldn't help themselves at times because of how they had been reared throughout their childhood, particularly as a, a young child or in adolescence. And it almost seemed like the natural outcome was this increase uh, in interaction with the criminal justice system. It's, in fact, I was reading articles uh, done in Florida. They had about 60,000 uh, youth who had, were incarcerated or who were in part of the system. And on a scale of one to 10 with the ACEs, uh, which is how they measured it, these kids in Florida in the criminal justice system, juvenile justice system, they were all maxing out at like eight, nine, 10 ACEs at a time. It would have been unusual to find somebody who was on a scale of like one to two uh, that were involved in uh, criminal justice. And so putting all this together, it's like there's got to be a better answer. Right. So they talk about preventing adverse childhood experiences and how you can mitigate that uh, for the health benefits. Is it not also possible and viable that we can mitigate that from the, the social justice uh, side of the house as well? And so that's where, you know, I came to Mississippi and I'm thinking all these things. And uh, you probably heard me talk about that correlation, that connection. And um, it's even become more ingrained in me now. Uh, as I see that that really has an effect upon people. Uh, but if we're looking for responses, if we're looking for ways to try to address that problem, then for me, it's like, well, let's get to the root of the problem. Because right now it just seems like we're putting Band-Aids on issues in the hope that we'll stem the bleeding. But if we know what the root of the problem is, can we not address that? Should we not address the roots? Uh, and then make, maybe make a more long-term uh, impact upon the people who need it most. It feels like that difference between sort of um, responding to a problem versus trying to fix a problem uh, is a big kind of mindset shift uh, that it feels like in a lot of my conversations with other law enforcement, that maybe that's the difference sort of in our perspective of looking at it is, um, you know, should, should crime be punished? Well, yes, but but I want to go down a layer to say what's causing the crime. And if we can address that, then we have less crime to punish. So I don't want people just committing crime and getting away with it. I want to address why crime is happening. So we actually, you know, have less crime. <laughs> so is that kind of what you feel like that? Do you feel like that was one of those shifts in your mind of kind of taking that step further back to say, okay, juveniles committing violence. Uh, yes, they need to be held accountable for it, but we're just going to keep holding more and more people accountable unless we figure out why they're committing violence. Right. When you have the numbers that you have with, uh, in particular Mississippi with incarceration rates as high as they are, uh, and in other States they are equally as high almost. Uh, and I know there's been a push in some States to stop building prisons and try to let people out and obviously changing and how they see the drug laws helps, uh, with some of that. 
But even then, I don't think it really gets to the root of the problem. It's just, again, trying to fix another problem. It's fixing overcrowding. It's fixing, you know, too many people in the system. It's not addressing what got them there to begin with. It's not addressing that person's well-being, uh, which I really think is at the heart of what we should be asking. You know, I was thinking just recently, you know, it may sound kind of, uh, I, I don't know the right word, but uh, thinking about, you know, in the Constitution, uh, our rights and and how things are, are talked about in Declaration of Independence, when we start talking about life and liberty and pursuit of happiness, and we talk about we, these things are, are mentioned in a sense of your well-being, your ability to live a good life, your ability to, to have well-being in your life. And obviously, there are many things that get in the way. And sometimes it's just stress and anxiety and, uh, you know, death and other issues that are just part of life. And then there's all these extra issues that come into play uh, because of poverty, because of lack of education, because of uh, poor social uh, environments, because of uh, the violence in the community. Uh, all these issues are, in essence, sort of man-made, right? These are problems that we have created, and they affect an individual's well-being in life. And I often think that the response that we see, particularly from the drug side, is someone trying to find that calm, somebody trying to find that that point in their life where they can, it seems kind of try to say, be happy, but have a, a certain level of well-being. And we're, we're seeing the ramifications of that because we're not addressing people's well-being. We're putting them in jail uh, because they've broken the law uh, and we're really not rehabilitating them. Uh, I think we use jail as more of a, um, to make the victim feel better uh, that somebody's getting, you know, their comeuppance and getting their, you know, what, what to do then for the crime they committed and not thinking about, okay, they committed that crime. Now, how do we, how do we re- rehabilitate them and get them in a position where that when they come out, they're not having to go back to the life the way it was. They actually have options. And, and we don't, I don't think we, we focused on that enough. Mm. Uh, and so I see this big cycle, just like I said, or this generational cycle uh, of, people in families and in children and, and uh, families and over and over again, because uh, we're not addressing the root causes. Yeah, that's interesting. You use that term well-being. That was um, the book that I'm working on. One of the interviews that I did uh, was a man who is in recovery from opioid addiction. And that's the term that he used for how he felt when he first started using drugs. It was this intense sense of well-being. Like things I finally feel like I feel okay. I feel good about myself and my life after always feeling like I don't fit in. I don't, I just don't, something is wrong with me. Um, And that's, that's so counter to this cultural idea of why people are using drugs. You know, they're using drugs because they want to be bad. They're using drugs because they're crazy. Uh, No, they're using drugs because it's helping them to feel better than they do right now. That's, that's why we all do the right. things that we do. Um, it's very different from what we think. And I know you uh, know or knew Shane Gerard, uh, somebody that was uh, important to me a few years ago when I was trying to learn about, you know, the effects of trauma and addiction and so forth. And and he had a saying that I've repeated a thousand times, and it's helped me sort of put in perspective an aspect of this conversation we're having. And that is that substance abuse 
is a physical response to an emotional pain. Right. So if we think about and, and you can substitute substance abuse for any type of uh, drug, you know, the cocaine, the heroines, the opioids, uh, you could put in anything else that we do that might have an addictive personality or addictive uh, expression because we have some type of emotional pain and we're trying to numb that pain because we're not at peace. We're not happy. We're not at um, a place of well-being. And so we're going to physically do something, physically take drugs, physically engage in behavior uh, until we find ourselves numbing that pain. And again, that goes back to, are we addressing the root cause? Are we addressing the symptoms? Uh, and it seems to be that for at least a large segment of the population, uh, and I think particularly the people that we're concerned about the most or talking about the most, and, and that are those who are addicted to these substances that, that then have ramifications, I think if you ask them, they would say, yeah, I was trying to numb some type of pain because they weren't at peace in their life for whatever reason. Hey friends, this podcast is just a part of the work we do at End It For Good, inviting more people to this conversation on changing the way we approach drugs and addiction. We want strong families, safe communities, and policies that uphold the dignity and value of every single human life. If you're not signed up for our monthly newsletter yet, head on over to enditforgood.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and sign up. You'll get all the info on the rest of the work that we do, including live events, and it'll get you plugged in to the End It For Good movement. So why do you think um, it's so challenging for people in law enforcement to rethink what we're doing with drugs? And in a, in a minute, I want to kind of get to sort of where you're at. And, you know, what do you think kind of the pros and cons of changing policies related to drugs? But why is it, you know, people often think, well, um, you know, law enforcement is on the front lines of this. And so if there's change that needs to happen, they're going to be the people to let us know because they're the ones that are enforcing it. So as long as they're saying we need to, you know, keep going, crack down, whatever, that must be the right thing to do. Um, from, from your experience in that field and that career, um, what, what is that mindset that is, uh, makes it maybe, in my experience, more challenging for law enforcement to rethink rather than less challenging? It's almost like the closer you are to it, the harder it is to, to rethink it. What is your experience of that? Well, first thing I'd, I'll mention is that there are people who are telling us in law enforcement that things need to change. Now, they may not all be saying the drug laws need to change, but they're telling us things need to change. Uh, and, and so I think we need to be open to listening to even what might be a minority voice or, or a small group of people saying it. Uh, I think part of the tr- problem, and I'll speak, you know, perhaps just for myself, I don't want to generalize too far, but, you know, when you think about how long have we had the war on drugs, right? I think you just marked it with some of your posts uh, last year, 50 years, right? That means that for most people who are still engaged in a law enforcement capacity, that's all they've ever known is this, here's the law. We've been in charge of enforcing the law. And they've seen it maybe go up and down. Maybe the 80s were worse than they were in the 90s. And, you know, maybe the last few years have been worse than the previous 10, but either way, it's still the same idea that we have lots of people engaged in illegal activity and here what the law is, and we're fighting this war on drugs. And in, I believe it in some ways has become 
law enforcement's identity, right? If you ask law, what do you do? Uh, what type of work do you do in law enforcement? Uh, what's the most important work or something along those lines? Somehow it's going to be tied to fighting drugs, right? And, and that's what they promote from the D.A.R.E. campaign to everything else that, that we've done. Just say no to, to drug type of thing. That's what law enforcement has been doing is trying to prevent the spread of drugs, the the. the Use of drugs, everything's been related uh, to drugs, the cases they're involved in. And so somehow I think part of the problem is it's their identity. Uh, and if you take that away, what are you saying? That somehow I'm no longer an effective police officer because we're no longer fighting the war on drugs? Or that I fought it for 50 years and now you're saying it's not important anymore? That somehow the laws are changed? What does that say for, for the work I did all those years? The people who sacrificed their life in undercover operations or, and, and they died. Are you saying that their jobs, that their sacrifice is not important because drugs are the, the, the war on drugs is not important anymore? And so I think that's a big barrier to overcome. Now, you know, tactically, I'd say it also uh, a lot of the economic well-being of police departments is tied to the war on drugs. Think about all the in this case, billions, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars um, over the years that the federal government primarily has given to state and local law enforcement to fight the war on drugs. So all those nice cars, all that overtime, all those cool gadgets, maybe enhanced weapons, all that sort of stuff comes from the federal government giving that, you know, giving the money through asset forfeiture primarily, which came from interdicting drugs, uh, to help pay for, for all these things that go on in the state and local law enforcement. Office. Explain asset forfeiture. So asset forfeitures, you know, you don't have a right to traffic in illegal uh, drugs and make money off of that. And so any money that you make, and this is not just for drugs, it's for other issues, but any illegal proceeds that you make are subject to being forfeited as part of the case against you. And it's a separate civil proceeding, usually in addition to the criminal proceeding. Uh, but at the end of the day, the odds are that the government, the federal government primarily is going to take your uh, illegal gains and then share it with the state and local agencies that were involved in that uh, arrest and prosecution. And you might uh, hear from time to time, there has been a push recently to sort of, uh, I guess, uh, look at the asset forfeiture laws and sort of figure out how to, uh, to rehabilitate them because at times they had been abused. Uh, it sometimes you can, in the cities or the States and others ended up taking money uh, administratively that in the criminal case was never proved against them. And, you know, so it's like, well, Hey, that was my money. And, and it, 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 in some ways it got out of hand. Uh, but yeah, that's asset forfeiture. So the, you've, you forfeited your asset, your, your money, and now it's being used and refunneled back into the state and local, primarily state and local, but also federal law enforcement. Mm. So it's kind of on a, on a street level of how that might happen. It could be someone's pulled over, they're found, you know, maybe they search the car, they find a large quantity of money um, and uh, I don't know, a joint or something like that. So maybe there's a, a criminal proceeding, maybe let's say five joints, a criminal proceeding related to the, the marijuana that's found in the car and there's can also simultaneously the, then be a 
civil proceeding related to, we think that money came from you selling drugs to somebody. And so we're going to, we're going to take that money um, because we, we believe this is engaged in criminal activity. Is that sort of a, yeah, it's probably like you said, more from maybe not just having some small trace of uh, drugs in your car, but if you're accused of, of trafficking, mm-hmm. right? Like you mm-hmm. said, selling, selling the drugs, and then you use that money uh, to buy big houses or to buy expensive cars or uh, some other tangible asset or just have cash in your safe. But uh, anything that the government can tie back to your uh, illegal uh, get, gaining of that fund, then they can uh, file a case against it and try to forfeit that money. So, and then that money could come back into they. Let's say they seize it, they then redisperse that yeah. to the agencies. Yeah, and then it goes into there's from the federal side, which I'm more a little bit more familiar with. Uh, you know, Department of Justice takes that, puts it in a special account, and then I've forgotten exactly what the the percentages are, but you know, as much as maybe seventy, eighty percent of it goes back to the agencies uh, that help the federal government make that case. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like kind of from from everything you've said, since I asked the question about law enforcement rethinking, there is sort of a um, this personal investment, career investment, ideological investment in in this thing that they have been part of for their whole careers. Um, but and then there's there's also can be a financial investment of where is our funding coming from? Uh, you know, we as none of us do, none of us want to work somewhere that's losing funding. So I think people are often, um, you know, they get angry and say, well, this is just, you know, law enforcement just want their money. But I just think it's helpful to say, well, all that's what all of us want for wherever we work. Nobody wants to be in a place that's letting people go all the time or that has a shrinking budget and everyone's worried about their jobs. So that's a, an understandable to me. That's an understandable um you know, perspective, thinking about where does your budget come from and wanting to keep those revenues flowing. And we hadn't even talked about the moral ramifications of how we think about drugs, right? So if you've got the ideological uh, side of who I am as an officer, what does that mean for me and my profession? You've got the economic side, you know, how does it affect me uh, financially? That's even before we talk about the idea that we still see it, not only just as a nation, uh, I don't want to make too again too wide of, of judgments here, but pretty much everybody uh, sees drugs uh, with a moral lens, right? This is bad. This is bad for you. They're in. That's why they call it illicit and illegal. This is this is something you shouldn't be doing. So, you know, you can have your own viewpoint. Forget the other two I talked about. Your own viewpoint of how you look at the problem uh, and what it means to people that you've got to overcome. Uh, and so I, you put that those three together and it's like, yeah, there's, it's, it's no willing. It's no, it's not, uh, I'm surprised that we're not making a bigger idea out of it because it's, it's understandable that people would be, uh, adverse to making such significant changes, uh, mm-hmm. in the law from any one of those standpoints. Yeah, that makes sense. So what do you think are, um, maybe the best the best reasons from your own journey that you could see maybe not using the criminal justice system, maybe legalizing some substances could be the best thing to do. Um, 
and what makes you most uncomfortable about that sort of the the pros and cons of um, what you think we could gain versus what you think we might lose as you think through kind of those big big picture drug policy changes yeah i think part of it is you know probably having a better understanding of what does it mean to legalize these drugs right so i am not at the point where i'm saying okay uh if you trafficked in drugs if you were part of cartels if you committed heinous acts of uh, violence to uh, perpetuate your drug trade, you should somehow get out of jail or that somehow that's not important. I'm not there. And I think that we also need to think about uh, the idea that, I guess, uh, connected that though, on the other side is, you know, what would be uh, the positives for, for making these uh, drug trades, uh, making these changes in the drug laws. Uh, and I really think that part of it is going back to, are we helping the people that need to be helped the most? If we continue down the same path we are, uh, where you have, I just read the other day, 100,000 people who died of opioid overdose, right? That's 100,000 people that every year are dying that we could be helping. We could be making a difference. And you start saying, well, what percentage? Surely not all of them would respond. Okay, well, pick your percentage. Is 90% of the people worth it? Is 50% of the people worth it? Is only 10% of the people worth it? Are you basically uh, monetizing someone's life and saying, well, their their life is not valuable enough to try to save? I don't think that's my call. Certainly not as a law enforcement officer. My call is to protect all people uh, and serve all people. It's not my position to start making judgment calls on whose life is worth it and whose life is not. If I can, if we can change the laws or how we see the laws in order to help get people uh, what they need to overcome addictions, to get them out of the cycle of generational trauma, to get them out of the cycle of of engaging in this type of activity uh, so that we can improve not only individuals' life, but society's life, then I'm open to that conversation. I'm open to that discussion. Uh, at at the moment, I look back on the 50 years of drug war and go, what have we really gained? Uh, are we any better off than we were? And I think that's certainly debatable. And it's like, well, if we're not better off, if we're still having to fight this war on drugs, and now it's even maybe worse because we've got fentanyl, we've got other issues that are uh, devastating our country, then what are we, where have we succeeded? And so I'm open to conversations that says, let's think about this differently. Let's think about this differently. Uh, and so we go back to what does it mean to legalize drugs? Uh, I'm open to the idea that, you know, the federal government looks at it like they do alcohol or looks at it like they do other issues and they control it. It's taxed. <laughs> like the federal government's going to get its share. Uh, the people get what they need. Uh, and, and there might be a, a, a framework that uh, is helpful there. And so I'm still struggling with this. What does it mean to sort of legalize and just, uh, you know, make what was illegal now acceptable? Uh, but I do think it's worth having that, con- that exploring the conversation that says things haven't worked. Are there better ways? And is it working elsewhere? And I think, you no. Know, is it working on the scale of 300 million people? Uh, probably not. But certain places like the Vancouver's and uh, the Portugal's and other places around the world, it's, it seems to be working better. I know there's still a lot of hurdles, but it seems to be working better. Uh, 
But I don't think that the answer can be some knee-jerk reaction that just says, well, this is all bad. Uh, this is not a worthy discussion. Let's move on. Because we have overcome issues in our past before. We've changed culture uh, in how we see things. If, if nothing, if no better example than that is smoking. I mean, smoking is going to kill you <laughs> maybe more slowly. It took my father's life just a few months ago. Uh, I saw him smoke my entire life, you know, and he never had a problem up until the point he had a problem. And then all of a sudden he's gone. And it was because of the, the cancer that resulted from the smoking. Okay. When we look back at when he first, you know, when he was a child and in the movies and the TV shows, smoking was everywhere, but because we've campaigned against it, we've seen a change. People still smoke. I get that, but it's not like it used to be. And people see it and understand it differently. Uh, can we understand how we treat drugs and drug addiction and how we look at this problem of illegal drugs differently than we have in the past that might might help society? Um, it's easy for naysayers, naysayers to say, nope, not going to do it. You know, let's move on without having to address uh, the issue. Uh, and I just think this perpetuation of the same place where we've always been is is not getting us anywhere uh, and and I think that's one of the biggest challenges I have is I I don't get into leadership I don't get into uh, trying to solve problems and not solve the problem you know I don't I'm not for paying lip service to it I mean if you if you're going to tell me the war on drugs is the way to go then you need to show me a plan for how we're going to win what and what that really means because every time you feel like you're making the headway you got fentanyl you got some other uh drug coming on the market that undermines everything. Why? And, and again, why is that a problem? Because people are still looking for a physical response to an emotional pain, right? And emotional pain might be poverty that they're trying to get money from the sale of drugs in order to even live, or it could be that they're taking the drugs in order to numb that emotional pain. But at the end of the day, there's still that emotional pain. And we can't say, we just can't sit back and say, well, this problem's too big. We can't solve this problem. It's just going to have to be accepted. I don't, I don't buy that. I don't buy that way of thinking, right? If we are who we say we are as a nation, as a people, as a, and what we say is we're capable of doing, then there ought to be a way to solve this uh, societal problem and, and bring a higher level of life, liberty, and happiness or well-being, however you want to describe it, to our society instead of just writing them off. And right now, I think we're seeing that. We're seeing the segregation. We're seeing people... Uh, move to where they think that they uh, are like have like-minded individuals. They're they're disengaging from other people. Uh, they're disengaging from problems and the government, and so forth. Because I think they've they've had too much of it, and they're looking for some type of uh, of peace. And I think we're in general going about it the wrong way. Preach. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. So I think if people listen to you, if they listen to you for the last like seven minutes when you were talking, what they're hearing is that you are looking, you're looking for solutions, but you're ultimately, you're, you're um, recognizing that this sort of emotional pain, a lot of that, you've said this before, as we talked earlier, is this loss of hope. There's a, a loss of, uh, um, you know, beliefs that things are going to be better. And so I need to, to, to numb the way I feel now. And they're, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday, just, um, you know, the days when I feel kind of hopeless and yet my life, if somebody looked at it from the outside, is like, you know, 
I have been given incredible opportunities, grew up in a wonderful home, have a great education, all of these things. If I still feel hopeless on some days and like the world's kind of, you know, falling down around me and I, you know, I don't know, I just can't, this is hard. Um, you know, what is it like for other people who, who don't have that, who see at every turn that what, what their perspective is at, at least is there is no way out of this. Um, for me. And I think for, for people particularly maybe related to addiction in the criminal justice system, it feels like that. It feels like this kind of spin cycle of, you know, as long as I'm struggling with addiction, I'm also, you know, I'm in, once I'm in, I just can't get out and it's, it's kind of hopeless. I've got fees and fines. I've got this, you know, 10 years of probation or whatever hanging over my head. Hey friends, you may be listening to this and you're new to this conversation, or you don't agree with our perspective and that's fine. You're welcome here. But if you agree and you want to know what you can do to spread the movement, head over to enditforgood.com slash two minutes. That's the number two and the word minutes and sign up for our weekly two minutes for good email. It gives you one thing to do in less than two minutes to expand this conversation. You're busy and this is a quick way to make a difference. So what have you learned about hope that gives you a sense of sort of this, um, that fervor towards I'm not okay with just saying, well, you know, heck it's the way the world is, you know, it sucks, but that's all we got. Um, what have you learned about the science of hope? What I have learned about the science of hope is it's not wishful thinking, right. And it's not just optimism, this idea that, well, things are just going to be better, right. It's just around the corner. As soon as somebody's elected, as soon as some policies passed, as, some, as soon as somebody hits up on, you know, the next big thing, everything will be better. I'm just going to be optimistic about it. Uh, that's kind of an extrinsic or, or outside way of, of looking at things. You're, in other words, in some ways, it's also a uh, reactive approach, right? I'm waiting for something out here to happen that will change my life versus the science of hope that says tomorrow can be better than it is today. And I have the power to make it. So that doesn't mean that everything's going to be great, that I'm always going to meet every goal that every, I'm always going to have uh, everything I ever wanted, but it means that I now have a framework for actually trying to mitigate, uh, and overcome the adversities and traumas that have affected me up to this point, right? And, it, and it, there is an idea of having hopeful thinking and positive emotions, but at the end of the day, it's like I said, it's not this wish. It's actually doing something, and it's setting goals. It's understanding and identifying pathways to those goals, and it's finding ways to continue to build and motivate your willpower to accomplish those goals. And you were talking about uh, the Drug basically, we're talking about drug court without using drug court. You mentioned the fines and the fees and everything. And let's just use that for an example, or maybe part of that might be uh, family court with uh, parents who've lost their kids uh, because of they've engaged in drugs and neglected and that sort of thing. All right, so when they go into court, right, the court is imposing upon them uh, all these different requirements, right? Here's everything you have to do. You got to get a job. You got to go through this type of uh, program. You've got to uh, show up here every week. You, you got to meet your probation off. You got all these things you got to do. You got to deal with, you know, where your kids are and the problems that they're going through. And on top of that, 
uh, you have a substance abuse problem. You got to get treated for it. And we're not, you're not getting your kids back until you've successfully treated uh, your substance abuse. But because of the substance abuse and because of everything else, you don't have enough money to keep the lights on at home. You don't have a lot of food in the house. You, you change jobs every other week because you can't keep a job because you don't have transportation to get to the job. And you have more issues than I can name. And so I go into court and my goal is to get my kids back. But yet the court has imposed all these other restrictions. What do you think your willpower is to meet every one of those restrictions or conditions when you're trying just to get up out of bed in the morning and not to be overcome by whatever demon is that keeps you enslaved to engage in that activity. And so we talk about whose goal is it that you're trying to impose? Is it the government's goal? Thou shalt do X, Y, and Z, or is it the individual's goal? And odds are, if you ask that individual, they're going to go, well, that, the government's goal is not my goal. My goal is not to go through a substance abuse program. My goal is not to have to show up every week at uh, the drug court. Those aren't my goals. My goal is to get my kid back. That's what I got motivation for. But I don't have enough motivation to get through all these other issues. And so what happens? We often see a return of the same people in drug courts or they're prolonging their case because they have a hard time focusing on overcoming the barriers that are in their way for reaching their goal. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. So it's like the goal is, is a number of steps away, probably many steps away. Yeah. And it's hard to, to kind of keep those, all those steps in front of you and to really feel the, the sense of like forward motion. Like, Oh, if I, yeah. if I do these 15 things, I'm finally going to get my child back. It's it's hard to, to and as soon as somebody in front of you. fails at some of those, it's like kind of getting recycled. Now you're starting back at the beginning again. It's this perpetuation of the same problems over and over. Or as you were talking about, you you know you're paying the fines for years and years. Why? Because that's how the court makes their money is off the fines and the fees that the people pay. That's how it gets funded. So again, conflict of interest in many ways. Uh, and so if you can imagine, your your hope is very low because of all these challenges. And I, when I was learning about trauma and learning about uh, adverse childhood experiences and talking about it, I walked away often going, I'm not sure what I'm really telling somebody to do just to acknowledge the trauma, to be more empathetic towards someone with trauma. What am I, what am I actually asking them to do? And so it was when I heard about the science of hope and the framework that it presents and how it's different from just being optimistic or, you know, having, uh, you know, wishing that something were to come true and actually providing a framework for maybe making those goals happen. Uh, that's when I said, Hey, now I've got more of a complete package here. Uh, and so and science just means that you, you can research it, you can measure it, you can study it, you can help, uh, see how, you know, measure one person's level of hope against another person's level of hope, you know, because there's a, a, a measurement uh, instrument to do that. That's, that's the science behind it. At the end of the day, uh, it really is, though, helping people identify what they want in their life, helping them identify how they might 
get there, the barriers that might prevent them from getting there and finding ways to help keep them motivated when those barriers inevitably raise their ugly head because they will. And so from some of us who have high hope, we always think there's always a better tomorrow. I can always do this. I've done it before. I can do it again. Somebody who's come from a background that, you know, they, they didn't have anybody. They were just trying to make it through the day. Then they're, they're, they're probably a low hope individual. Uh, and if they're a low hope individual, then they're getting to the point where they're just apathetic. They're in a state of despair and they may become apathetic where I don't care. Uh, there's no way out of this. And I think that's where you see more of the suicide ideation. That's where you see uh, the, the struggles. Just I just want to be medicated so I can, you know, don't have to feel this emotional pain anymore. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to provide that. I'm, I'm trying to provide that hope, uh, that framework that says, okay, let's take these things one at a time. Let's work through it. And it's, let's do something that's positive uh, and not being judgmental because we will take steps forward and steps back but how do we continue to work forward in a way that uh, increases my level of hope and Mm. and my ability to, to overcome. That made me think about um, a conversation I had recently with a um, father who lost his son to an overdose. And one of the things that he told me and kind of just sharing their story was um, that uh, his son at one point uh, was sentenced to a 10 year prison term for um, selling a couple of pills to somebody that was caught on a security camera or something like that. Um, And he said, you know, when that, when that sentence came down, what I saw in my son's face was the draining of hope that I, I don't fit. I can't make this work for whatever reason. I don't belong in the world as it is. This just, it doesn't have a place for me. Um, And, and that never returned for him, even after he, um, came out of prison, he was never able to regain a sense of, you know, I, I can, you know, move my life forward. And, and there is hope against so this really, I just came to mind as you were talking about that. Um, just an interesting perspective it's, on that. It's a great example. I mean, when, when you see somebody who the hope is drained from them and they feel like they have no options, what, are they going to do what, what is the expected outcome? Right. And if you can't help rebuild that hope, if you can't help nurture that hope that was within them, then when something horrible happens, what else would you expect? And again, it goes back to the law enforcement and, and the way we look at this problem. Are we basically saying it's okay to give up? It's okay not to can to help them, their life isn't worth uh, the help that they need. The life isn't worth trying to invest in hope. Uh, and I don't think we would say that, but yet I think we, in some some ways, have have boxed ourselves into that corner where we have not given ourselves the option to think outside the proverbial box and to see the problem from a different perspective, and perhaps shift the paradigm in a way that allows society to achieve its goal while also allowing the individual to achieve his or her goal. Uh, because again, we've only seen this as, as one dimensional. Uh, and, you know, you might convince me that legalizing drugs is not the answer, but you're going to have to work at it. You're going to have to show me why thinking about this problem differently 
is no better than what we have been doing. I'm open to whatever you can show me from an evidentiary standpoint will make a difference, but you got to engage in the conversation. You just can't say this is wrong. And I, I, you know, there's, there was some politician who was basically recently saying that this is, you know, drugs are wrong. This is the problem. And if they just knew better, got their life together, then they wouldn't be in this situation. And uh, it's their fault. Oh, you know, come on, please. Uh, That just means you've never been affected by anybody in your life, you know, with an issue. Um, And so that's, that's where I am is I want to have this conversation and I want to see what other options we can come up with that will in essence bring well-being to people's lives. Uh, And again, to our society and to, uh, and how we define that, because uh, at the end of the day, we can't just be writing this off because the last 50 years we've shown it hasn't worked. Yeah. That reminds me of um, at one of our events uh, last year. So the way our events work, we, you know, do a presentation. um, Then the whole rest of the time is spent with people giving their feedback on the presentation. So everybody gets a minute to share what they think. And um, this one was a a larger event. There were about a hundred people there. And one of the first people that the microphone got to was um, an attorney. And he said, you know, I just want to see someone show me some statistics, show me some evidence that criminalization has worked. Where is, he? I know people are worried about, you know, legalization. I know they're worried about the, the, you know, what could happen. Is there any evidence anywhere that criminalization has, you know, decreased crime, decreased drug use, decreased addiction? Like, you know, he said, I just, I have not been able to find it. So, whether or not you think legalization is the way to go. Um, I, I'm looking at what we have right now and I'm seeing um, it is not worked. And so I think we need to be open to, to other, other ways of thinking about this and exploring other things. Yeah. It's not like we're in a neutral situation where, you know, there's something neutral happening and maybe there'll be some negative outcomes with changing it. We're already getting a lot of negative outcomes from what we're doing. Is there potential for positive outcomes from changing that? So what is, um, as we wrap up here, uh, what's something that maybe I didn't ask you that you think is important to add to the conversation? Well, I think one of the important things is leadership does matter, right? And and we're going to have to have strong leadership through this problem. Uh, you and others have demonstrated leadership as you've addressed it and presented it. Uh, but we're going to have to have people who are willing to, as we talked about, engage in the conversation without feeling like they're uh, alienating others or that you're somehow uh, not listening to their own constituents, right? You, you've got to have the communication, but you've got to be willing to, to take on these hard conversations and not just, you know, feel like you're, parroting whatever your base says because it's a hard conversation it is challenging uh and like i said i've gone back and forth at times and and up and down and i'm not always sure what i believe on it uh but i do think it's leadership matters and that we have to you know be willing to address this problem and understand what we're asking of society what we're asking of the people right because as we talked about earlier in our conversation we have a lot of economic uh, ties to to the war on drugs, right? You start taking thinking about 
all the courts, all the attorneys, everything that goes into the police departments. Think about all the corrections and all the institutions and think about all the, the different uh, halfway houses. And I don't know, I, I'm sure there's thousands I can't even count. But right, we haven't a vested interest in how we our economy has evolved over these 50 years to address this problem. And we're going to have to be willing to say when those people, if if changing the law puts those people out of work, here's how we're going to help them. Then there's, again, no incentive or less incentive to actually address the problem because, again, it's going to be such huge change. Uh, so I think part of what we're going to have to do is really communicate what a better life looks like, what a better society looks like, what a what a United States of America looks like that is not fighting the war on drugs. As, as I mentioned, for 50 years, that's all we've been doing. And uh, people, they don't see anything other than that. So how do we go about presenting a different picture that addresses some of these underlying issues uh, besides just, you know, decriminalizing drugs. So I, I think that's important to, as part of the conversation. Yeah, I love that. It's a great point. Uh, I heard somebody say, um, you know, that they thought maybe one of the best things that could happen is that somebody would produce a movie that was set in a world where all drugs were legal because it is so hard for us to sort of envision that world. None of us have ever lived in that world, even though it was the world for millennia prior to a hundred years ago, but we didn't live prior to a hundred years ago. So we haven't experienced that. It feels scary to us. And so they had pitched that to uh, a producer that they knew just saying, Hey, I just really think somebody should make this kind of movie. And the, the guy had said that would just, that would be the most boring movie in the world. It would be like saying right now, you know, we should make a movie where alcohol and tobacco are legal. Well, that's every movie. It's not a, it just, you know, they, maybe they shoot a scene that's passing by a, a liquor store or something like that. You know, it factors in, you might see people who are drunk in the movie or, or whatnot. Um, but the, the, the store, the conflict that comes with drug policy comes from kind of where we have now that the conflict of all of these, you know, series that are being done right now on cartels and all of that, that the, the conflict is created there. The story is there because of the effects of prohibition. So that was such an interesting thing to me because I still, we talk on our team all the time about, you know, what would this world look like and what, how would it affect this particular sector? How would it affect, you know, looking for a job? How would it affect uh, education and, um, you know, right now you're not eligible for loans and grants a lot of times if you have any kind of drug charge, you know, all of those kinds of things, how would it impact the world? And there's some negative impacts, there's some positive impacts. Yeah. We think positive more than negative, but um, I just thought that was a really funny thing. Really boring. And part of the challenge there is it's, it's laziness that allows us to fill in the holes with, you know, the expected stereotypes right if i wanted a movie like you said it was entertaining well i'm just going to have a couple you know some drug cartel types fight each other out i'm going to get you know the car chases and the explosions and you know the the drama that goes with that and uh you know there'll be some police and maybe some will be corrupt and some won't be it's just it's we've seen these movies over and over again but they still get made because it's kind of a lazy way to make a movie because we know that that's a formula that we can fit in we're still going to have violence. We're still going to have uh, problems because we're human individuals and we're not perfect. The question is whether or not drugs have to be at the center of that uh, or whether or not we can see a world that is not controlled uh, and dictated by uh, illicit drugs and 
the violence and the, and the problems that, that come around and surround that. Hmm. It's a great way for us to end. Chris, thank you so much. This has been such a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate you coming and sharing, being vulnerable, um, putting some thoughts out there that have been really helpful to me and I think to everyone else listening. Well, thank you, Christine. I appreciate your work. And like I said, I appreciate the conversation and discussion and, and working through this and trying to uh, to make lives better for people. Yep. If people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? I think the best is just through my email. It's Chris at MrChrisFreeze.com, M-R-C-H-R-I-S-F-R-E-E-Z-E.com. Uh, and also you can do that through my website, which is MrChrisFreeze.com. Either one of those is probably the easiest uh, way to send me a message and I'd be happy to respond. And and certainly, you know, like you said, people disagree and, and I'm open to that conversation as well because uh, I'm looking for a better way. Awesome. Great. Thanks so much. And join us next time on the End of a Good Podcast. So how do we shift our drug policies from a criminal justice approach to a public health approach? By inviting one person at a time to change their mind. Changed minds are the catalyst to changed laws. But many people are only willing to have this conversation when they're invited to by someone that they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, coworkers, other people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Start a conversation and join the movement to end it for good.